This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Okay, our hot question of the day today has to do with gas prices. We're going to be talking more about this on the show. Rob Shaw from the Vancouver Sun is going to join us to talk about his piece looking at this BC Utilities Commission investigation into the fluctuation of gas prices. We have all been subject to this, right? Over the last few months, they go up, they go down. It's it's a roller coaster ride and the worst kind of roller coaster ride too. So we've heard in the last 24 hours that some gas companies are actually withholding details of their profit margins from the BCUC, uh, citing, oh, commercial reasons, um, you know, corporate secrecy, all that kind of stuff that, oh, they can't let anybody know this. But the thing is, it's not like that information would be made available to the public. It would be redacted in the report to the public. So we wouldn't actually see it, but it is for the BC Utilities Commission to try to figure out Listen, where's the money here? What's going on? Where's that balance? How do we find it? So our hot question of the day today to you is this. Should they be forced to hand over this data? Do you say, yes, this is in the public interest. We all deserve to know. Or do you go, no, this is private corporate information. They shouldn't have to hand over anything. That's our hot question of the day today. Go to simisara980 or at cknw to cast your vote on this. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com. You know, the long weekend should have been a good one for the Curiosity Music Festival in Princeton. Decent weather, great lineup, good crowd. What could go wrong? Well, something sure did. Seven people injured, four people taken to hospital, and now they're saying assault charges are possible. So what went on there? That's what we're trying to find out. Shelby Tom, Global News reporter, joins us now to talk more about this. Hi, Shelby. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me. Well, we're so curious about this. Thanks for explaining it to us. What happened? Can you describe it to us? Yeah, well, as you said, there were some terrifying moments for attendees at this Curiosity Music Festival over the week long weekend. So this is a multi-day electronic hip-hop music festival that's held at the Stug Lake Amphitheater. So this is a forested area near Princeton. Everybody camps out, parties, has a good time over the long weekend. And we spoke to two patrons who said they were having a lot of fun until Sunday around 2 a.m. And that's when a man allegedly stole an ATV that was being used for first aid and plowed into a group of people dancing near the main stage. And that's when Jessica LaPlante and Justin Stolwinder said chaos just erupted on scene. Dustin had traveled to the festival from Kelowna with his girlfriend for the long weekend. He said he was struck by that ATV and suffered a fractured spine. He spoke to Global News about what happened. Take a listen. I remember holding hands, having a good time walking towards the stage, and that was my last memory before waking up on a stretcher. So how are you feeling right now? Um, I feel awful right now. Uh, I'm in a lot of pain still. Um, I'm, my mind is I'm still cloudy. Um, I think I'm still in a bit of shock. I was super scared I was going to be paralyzed. Like... The whole situation was scary. I never experienced anything anything like it. I woke up. I had no idea what happened. And then I found out my back was broken. It's like, wow. (laughs) Being rushed in an ambulance in the middle of the night. Getting people holding your neck. The scariest thing I've ever experienced. Yeah, no doubt. Pretty scary. So, Shelby, what are police saying about this and the man who's allegedly responsible? Like, what happened? Well, police say the man in question, he was being treated by first aid staff at the time, and apparently he became unruly, aggressive. He allegedly started assaulting the medical attendants, and that's when he stole the side-by-side and drove it into the crowd. So RCMP say he is a man in his 20s. It is believed he was impaired by drugs or alcohol at the time, and charges of robbery and assault with a weapon are being considered. Uh, My understanding is that charges haven't been formally laid, so they're not really the name of the suspect at this time, but he is facing some very serious charges. Okay, and what about the festival organizers? What have they said about this? 
Yeah, so we did attempt to get a comment from the festival organizers. Uh, The director declined an interview with Global News, but they did post a statement on their festival Facebook page, and it said it was an isolated event. Uh, The counseling and ongoing support is being provided to the victims. And it went on to say, Curiosity Music Festival would like to extend its sincerest apologies to the victims involved. This incident was unpredictable, and all staff acted in the best possible way to respond and contain any further injury or threats. But we would still like to speak with them because there's still a lot of outstanding questions here. I was taking a look at their website. They claim that drugs and alcohol aren't allowed on the premises. So how was this enforced? Who puts on this festival? How long has it been going on? Uh, You know, I live in the South Okanagan. This is the first time I've heard about this festival. So this is a developing story. We're still trying to get some information and we can uh, pass that on to you when we get it to find out, you know, could this incident have been prevented? Yeah, I know. Lots of questions still. Okay, Shelby, thank you so much for that. Thank you. That is Global News reporter Shelby Tom. What is going on with real estate these days? I mean, I don't think the barometers of the past necessarily reflect the whole story. It's not just about sales and the number of listings. There's more nuance to what's going on out there. For instance, take a look at these latest numbers out today for the month of June. The benchmark price of a home in the Metro Vancouver area fell below a million dollars last month. That's the first time that has happened since May of 2017. We are now below that $1 million mark. The Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver says the composite benchmark price for detached houses, townhouses, and condos is now $998,700. That is down 9.6% from the same time last year and down 0.8% from May. Detached houses, as we can expect, and we've been hearing, they saw the biggest drop falling 10.9% from June last year, 2018. And townhomes fell year over year as well. But there's still stuff that's selling out there. Let's find out more about that. Like, what is the market really looking like? Kevin Skipworth joins us now, the managing broker and partner at Dexter Realty. Kevin, thanks for being here. You're welcome, Simi. Thanks for having me on. Now, what do you, when you see these numbers, what do you think? Does that accurately reflect what's happening in the market? Oh, absolutely. You know, we are seeing a market right now with a lot of hesitation, both buyers and sellers. And uh, I think the key thing to look at and uh, really is the supply side of it that, uh, you know, when we look at the market in terms of how the activity has been the last couple of years, uh, we haven't seen a, a huge supply increase that we would normally see in down markets. Um, but certainly, you know, as you said, the detached market is is probably the hardest hit. Um, but in, when I looked at the June numbers, it actually performed better than townhouses and condos in terms of uh, overall activity as a share of the market. Right. So that's uh, so the numbers are a little bit deceptive, right? There is there is still some other things going on in there where there is some growth. Oh, absolutely. You know, we we saw nine straight months of uh, activity below two thousand sales uh, from. Uh, middle of last year up until uh, uh, April of this year, uh, and all of a sudden May jumped up a fair bit uh, to 2,600, almost 2,700 sales compared to 1,850 in April. Uh, June came off uh, to just below 2,100, which is typical for June. We see sales uh, start to come off uh, as the spring market uh, starts to slow down and goes into the summer. But you know, we don't. We are seeing multiple offers in the marketplace. There are buyers that are engaging. Uh, buyers that are moving up from condo and townhouses because the opportunity to get into a detached is now uh, more there than it has been in the last few years. So, uh, But there's still not a, a great amount of product when we look at it overall. Are sellers being more realistic about prices, like about what they're going to get for their homes? Some are. Some are getting it, some are not. And those that get it uh, are achieving sales uh, quicker and uh, and getting the buyers to, to uh, pay attention to them um, but there still are some that are are hesitant to to come on at uh, the right price and some that are just sitting and waiting uh, you know that seems to be the the theme of the market is a sit and wait approach uh, both because of uh, uncertainty of what you know the government may do and uh, and concerns about uh, just trying to understand where the market's going everybody everybody wants to know that magic question where is the market going where is the market going then, Kevin? That's a, what, what do you see happening over the next couple of months? Well, I wish my crystal ball was clearer uh, than it uh, than it is. But you know, it's it really depends on on one uh, you know 
what's going to happen in terms of uh, inventory. You know, if we see more product come on the market, then we'll likely achieve more sales. But, you know, when we look at the supply of active listings out there, you know, it's it's higher than it has been, um, but it's it's down a fair bit more than we've seen in, in slower markets. So buyers are, are sifting through trying to find the, the right product for the right place. They're very savvy of what's going on with prices as our, our realtors and, and trying to advise based on, on what they see in the market. But uh, it's likely going to continue along at a similar pace that we've seen. Um, there's no uh, there's no urgency from buyers and sellers to, to react to, to the market. Right. So is this the new normal then where we've got these kind of unsettled conditions and every month might bring us something different? Pretty much, uh, you know, it's we're at the mercy of of uh, psychology right now in the market, and and it can sway very quickly uh, when all of a sudden, uh, you know, buyers start to see things moving and start to see perhaps uh, prices that uh, are being achieved that uh, to them signals that it's time to engage. Uh, you know, everybody wants to know when the bottom of the market is so that they can go and buy. Uh, unfortunately, we typically will find out when that is six months after the fact. Um, and when we start to see activity increase, you know, that signals that yeah. buyers are starting to wake up and realize that now may be the time. You mentioned multiple offers, which we thought were a thing of the past, wouldn't you say? Like getting multiple offers on a property. So what brings a multiple offer these days? Well, it's, again, it's, it's, uh, it's the right property at the right price um, that will attract a buyer and uh, several buyers. And uh, and again, it's it comes from lack of inventory when there's not enough um quality product and, and not enough product at the right price, uh, we see buyers that will compete over when something comes up. You know, it's not the same frenzy that we saw in the past of multiple offers. We typically see more subjects on multiple offers, and we may even see situations where all the offers are below the list price. So it's not the same the same type of scenario that we've seen in the past, but it's just a, a signal that buyers are engaging and that there's not enough inventory. Okay, so if you've got, Kevin, somebody who comes to you saying, I want to buy, what what do you tell them to do? Well, first of all, it's always, you know, everybody wants to try and play the market and, and you know, when is the right time to buy? I think most times, and, and what a big part of the market is, despite, you know, a lot of commentary to the to the. Uh, to the uh, otherwise is that people are making decisions based on lifestyle. So, you know, why do you need to move and why, you know, what, what are you looking for? You know, a lot of times people sacrifice, uh, you know, what they need in life just because they're trying to play when the right time is. If you're going to buy a place or make a move that you'll be there for five to 10 years, then it's all relative in terms of what your position is. So I think people need to really look at, you know, what is, what is it that they need and what would make their life better? Um, and secondly, it's if you're a first-time buyer in, you know, uh, again, if you're looking to flip a property, you know, it's not the right market to do it. But if you're looking to make a move to get into something because you think it's going to make your life better and, and you would like to be in a home, then, uh, you know, make that decision based on that. Kevin, that sounds like what the housing market is supposed to be, though. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. should we, be, we're not, we shouldn't be getting into the market like, oh, I'm going to flip it. I'm going to make a ton of money. We should be looking at it as housing. Exactly, and that's what a lot of people want to do. But uh, there's that uh, that fear out there of what's going to happen next uh, because of all the uncertainty that's been thrown at the market from the government, uh, from a lot of commentary on the market. Uh, everybody's second guessing, and even you know, even people that want to make a move, you know, they want to know if this is the exact right time. Uh, it's really hard to pinpoint when that exact <laughs> yeah. time, and it's like trying to play a stock market. Um, but this isn't the stock market. This is, you know, a roof this over is, your head. Yeah, and people. What, makes your, what makes your life, you know, better than uh, where you are currently. So true. Allison, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. That is Kevin Skipworth, the managing broker and partner at Dexter Realty, talking about the latest numbers from the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. So yesterday, Prime Minister Trudeau commented that he was confident President Trump had brought up the matter of detained Canadians with China's Xi Jinping at the G20 summit. Well, today, China had some thoughts on that. A spokesperson for China's foreign ministry reacted to those comments, saying that Canada is being naive in assuming that U.S. President Donald Trump did them any favors by raising the case of the two imprisoned Canadians. Let's talk more about this, get some analysis as well from David Aiken, our chief political correspondent for Global News. Hi, David. Hey, hey, Simi, how's it going? And yeah, it's actually, we don't even know if... Yeah. Trump did, in fact, talk to Xi. The Trump White House won't say. Trump won't say. And Trudeau will only say, 
Well, we're pretty sure he did, but we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great point. There's been no official confirmation that this actually happened, but does it show that it might have struck a nerve with China, given that they responded in this way today? China's been, uh, anytime China, you know, ever since Meng Wanzhou got detained, China has used any opportunity to take a swipe at Canada, and this happened to be the latest one. So, uh, so yes, they're calling us naive for assuming that uh, some words from what they call so-called allies, that would be the United States, Ooh. of course, uh, could do any influence uh, in this particular case. And, of course, I'm relying on the translation from the Mandarin provided by uh, the Reuters news agency for this, but that's what they said. It was the uh, so-called allies of Canada they referred to and talked about us we can, quote, waggle our lips as oh. much as we want, but uh, this Ouch. is strictly a Canada, Ch- yes, this is strictly a Canada-China thing. So it is a really sort of peculiar thing. Right. What do we know then about what happened between Canada and China at the G20? We don't know a lot. Um, of course, our Mercedes Stevenson was in Osaka, Japan, covering the Prime Minister's visit to, to there, and obviously that was the story. Uh, throughout the summit was, you know, Trudeau was trying to get a formal meeting with President Xi of China, never did. Was he going to see them at lunch, at dinner, at this cultural event? There was a lot of awkward moments with Trudeau and Xi. They would sit beside each other and not even acknowledge that they were sitting there. And then they couldn't talk because there's a translation issue. Uh, Trudeau doesn't speak Mandarin, of course, and I guess Xi doesn't speak English. So so they, they did have some conversations, Trudeau said, but Trudeau asked... Uh, several times, including by our friend Mercedes, you know, what did you say? What was going on? Um, and he said, you know, we're, we're not going to talk about those things in public. It was between him and the Chinese president. And, you know, to give, uh, I suppose, true to his due here, we are dealing with a situation where two Chinese or two Canadians have are essentially being held hostage by the government of China. I mean, let's not mince any yeah. words about this. And to the extent the goal is to get them out, perhaps not... Uh, Perhaps the Canadian Prime Minister not talking a whole lot about the strategy involved here is a good thing. But but that said, as we all pointed out, the Chinese Foreign Ministry has no problem calling us naive, saying it's our fault that uh, relations have deteriorated to the step they have. And even more weirdly is, you know, this is all go- – remember, we started literally a week ago with the meat ban. Remember that? Oh, the, yeah. the ban on Chinese meat. And then there was the G20. And now we're getting a scolding from the Chinese Foreign Minister. And in the midst of all this – Trudeau has dispatched one of his cabinet ministers, the Minister for Small Business and Export Promotion, Mary Ng. She's from Markham. She's in Dalian, China, which is up sort of in the northwest of, of, of the country, at a business conference. And she's been there for two days talking about, you know, promoting small businesses in China. And, of course, there's a small businessman in jail in China. Yeah. Canadian so why are we doing that? Why would the government say, oh, and I saw the pictures, too, that you were talking about, David, where, you know, she's yeah. talking about she stopped in here and giving the big thumbs up. Why are we doing that when we're not getting any help in getting these two Canadians out of China? Well, a couple of things on that. So when I first saw the itinerary for, uh, for ministering, I, I asked the prime minister's office, I said, Listen, has there been any consideration given to the idea of, say, suspending ministerial visits? Mm-hmm. Obviously, we've got Canadian businesses who have contracts and have to carry on business in China and with Chinese firms. But can we? has there been any thought to suspending ministerial visits, at least to say a sign? And the PMO never answered me. Instead, I was deferred to Minister Ng's press secretary who, you know, said, oh, well, she, she'll bring up these cases whenever she can, and we believe in continued engagement with China, and this is part of that continued engagement, you know, to which I would say, you know, I'd buy that if we had an ambassador in China, but we haven't had one since the beginning or the end of January, and this month, as you may know, China pulled its ambassador to Canada to another posting. So neither country has an ambassador at this point in time. It's hard to see how you can buy the argument from Minister Ng or or whoever that you know yeah. we're going to continue to be cheery and engage with China. That, yeah, that, that's again that's what they say. I know. How can diplo- how can we say oh we're going to work on diplomacy when diplomacy clearly hasn't worked up until this point? Well, I mean that that's the thing. I mean we're, we're going to hear actually I think in a few minutes just at the bottom of the hour here uh, Jim Carr who's our trade diversification minister he's giving a press conference in Montreal and and certainly I, I think that's a reasonable question is. Can it really be business as usual when China has banned Canadian meat products? China has banned $4 billion a year worth of canola exports. China has banned soy exports. China has put two of our guys in jail. 
the Chinese government is standing up at their press briefings in Beijing and, you know, giving us these yeah. little scoldings, can, can it really be heading over to China with your business minister and tweeting out cheery pictures of an ice cream company from Prince Edward Island? I don't know. Uh, apparently the liberals say, say yes. Um, we'll hear from <laughs> Minister Carr shortly if, if he agrees. Is this something that you think we're going to hear more about from the opposition as well, David, as we head into the you know months where we're going to have an election? Last week, Andrew Scheer, the conservative leader, did say he would, quote-unquote, stand up to China uh, if he became prime minister. And he laid out a few things, one of which is uh, he would, um, as the Chinese are doing, he would insist that every single container that arrived from China go through an inspection process. And what that would do, would that would cause some delays. It would add increased costs to Chinese shippers. But to be honest, the prime minister has considered that, uh, the idea of stopping every container that comes to Canada. The prime minister has considered that and rejected the idea. Why? Because the port of Vancouver, among others, would absolutely get backed up. There'd be such mm. economic chaos caused in this country trying to do harm to China. And, of course, China exports a relatively small amount to Canada of all its exports. But to Canada, it's a huge amount of its imports. So... Whatever we, quote, try and do here, as Shear has suggested, has to be weighed against what sort of economic harm might we be causing ourselves in this country. So on that thing, you know, let's let's gum up uh, Chinese imports at the port of Vancouver. It may not be the smartest thing in the world from an economic pain sort of thing. But on the other hand, what about suspending ministerial visits? I mean, there, that's really not yeah. getting in the way of any business relationship. And it's sending a message to a, the government of China, which very often is very aware of these sorts of protocol slights and, you know, get their attention. One thing I heard, actually, in terms of getting China's attention or yeah. getting China and America's attention, why don't we just ban all overflights of planes flying Beijing to Washington? Ooh. Make them go down to L.A. and then up or around Canada. It would uh, be inconvenient. Chinese flights can still come to Canada, but if you're you – know, no overflights – you know, that would just be something that would get attention of oh, yes. policymakers, one would assume, in, in Beijing and Washington. Yeah. <laughs> that would start shaking things up. Um, David, thank you for your time on this. Look forward to hearing more. Hey, hey, no problem. Cheers. That is David Aiken, our chief political correspondent with Global News, with the latest on this situation. It seems like a deteriorating relationship between China and Canada. Now, if you have a pet, we all know that you want the best for your pet. And when it comes to people and their dogs, people will spend any amount of money to make sure they have the best dog food, the best dog care, you name it. Which was why over the last few years, you've seen this proliferation of dog or dog food that is grain free right? You probably feed your dog grain-free dog food. It's probably important to you. You go look for that on the label. And now there are some new concerns about that. And believe me, this horrified nobody more than the person we have with us right now to talk more about this, which is our Simi Sarah Show contributor, Claire Allen. Hi, Claire. Hey, Simi. So this is scary. Yes, and you're <laughs> right. I was very freaked out because as CKNW listeners know, I love dogs. Maybe more than life itself. I just love dogs so much. More, certainly more than any people. A hundred percent. And that is true. So when this, tell me what happened. What did you hear about? So over the weekend, I was just doing some reading and the New York Times came out with an article talking about this FDA report. And the report from the FDA found a link between popular grain-free dog foods and canine dilated cardiomyopathy. So the FDA is currently investigating more than 500 reports that appear to link these foods that are marketed as grain-free to this heart problem that some dogs develop. So what is this problem? Right. So dilated cardiomyopathy is a type of canine heart disease that affects the heart muscles. So simply it's um if if your dog is suffering from canine dilated myopathy, it's a the heart has a decreased ability to pump blood, which often results in congestive heart failure and if your dog develops DCM, which dilated cardi uh, canine dilated cardiomyopathy, oh, such a mouthful. Yes, um, it can be fatal unless it's caught quite early. So if it's caught early, you can, it can be treated with medication. But when I spoke to a cardiologist, they said sometimes there aren't any signs, and owners will catch it quite late, and then there's nothing that can be done. So for a lot of pet owners, this is very scary. And you talked to a dog cardiologist. Yes, I did. 
So how many dog cardiologists I'm interested are out there? Well, I actually know for myself because my dog does have a heart problem. And so she has had to see a dog cardiologist and it is an expensive appointment. <laughs> but uh, I will bet. Yes. Right. So when I read about this, I actually got a lot of text messages from other people that have dogs saying, did you read the story? Oh my God, I have grain-free pet food. And the problem is that grain-free pet food is actually very popular out there. Yeah. It's you may not even know that you're feeding your dog grain-free pet food. Like that may not be sort of an issue that you're that you think your dog has, but you probably have ended up with a pet food brand that is grain-free just because it's very popular. Just in the last couple of days, uh, knowing that we were going to be doing this and talking about it, I've look I've been paying extra close attention to the ads on TV. Every dog food ad that I have seen advertises itself as grain-free. Yeah, definitely. So I was one of those dog owners that frantically ran to check their dog's food. And I really wanted to learn more about this study. What was going on? You know, am I harming my dog by feeding them this very popular diet? I was really concerned because the, the dog food that I feed my dogs, which, yeah. you have, which one has a heart problem, is, grain, is a grain-free dog food. So to learn more, I spoke with Dr. Anna Gelzer. She's a veterinarian cardiologist... There you go. And, work. Yes. and an associate professor at the University of uh, Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine. And I asked her about what this report from the FDA found. They have been collecting information. Um, they have been contacted really by cardiologists such as me who have noticed an uptick of cardiomyopathies, of dilated cardiomyopathy in dogs where we typically wouldn't see this condition. Dilated cardiomyopathy can occur um, as a maybe genetically inherited um, heart disease in some breeds. It typically is a giant breed or large breed dog, such as um, Doberman Pinschers and Great Danes, um, that sort of size dog breed. But we uh, would find that it was uh, uh, sometimes smaller um, breed dogs who typically never had dilated cardiomyopathy or golden retrievers who were never... Um, a population at risk for this. And so um, in, in taking a, a diet history, some association was noted that there were um, frequently on a, a different type of dog diet that was grain-free. That sounds like it could be any type of dog, the way she described it. Right. So when I was chatting with her about this, she said, um, like she said in that clip, that there are certain breeds where uh, dil- a canine, canine dilated cardiomyopathy is sort of just a genetic trait that the dog may inherit. Uh, but th- what the problem is, is that with this study, what the FDA looked at were dogs where they should not develop this at all, and they were developing it. And the one thing that tied them all together was this grain-free diet. So the FDA actually named 16 brands of dog food linked to cardiomyopathy. I'm just going to go through them because I know for some pet owners, that's what they want to know is, am I feeding my dog these brands of food? Right. So you have Acana, Zignature, Taste of the Wild, For Health, Earth Earthborn Holistic, Blue Buffalo, Nature's Domain, From Merrick, California Natural, Natural Balance, Origin, Nature's Variety, Variety, Nutrisource, Nutro, and Rachel Ray Nutrish. Um, so those are very popular brands yeah. to me, like very popular. So popular that our producer, Alan Reagan, when he saw this list, got so upset because his dog food that he feeds his dog is at the top of the list. Definitely. And so um, these are not just like a, a weird boutique brands. These no, are mainstream. readily available yeah. mainstream brands. So what wasn't clear in the FDA's report was how the grain-free diet contributed to cardiomyopathy. And that's what I couldn't understand. So I asked Dr. Gelzer if she could explain that link, but even she said that it wasn't entirely clear yet. But the, why the, the grain-free diets are, are causing a cardiomyopathy, it's, so far we've only detected the association, not the cause and the effect. So that's really not out there yet. There are, there are theories as to maybe with too many legumes in the GI tract, there is an interference with absorption of the essential nutrients, but that's really not uh, proven. So there's nothing... Um, in the report, because that's that wasn't the objective, of course, either of the FDA. But I think that this should be the incentive now to try to really better understand what's the, the mechanism. So, Claire, people who are here are listening to this and are thinking, "Well, wait a minute, this could be my dog food. Like, what are they supposed to do?" Yeah, exactly. Even if you're listening and you think this is my dog food, like, yeah. what should I do? So, it's important to stress that the FDA has not suggested that owners change their dog's diet. But if you're like me, you're obviously quite freaked out that yeah. you're, you could be contributing to your pet's illness. So here's what Dr. Gelzer told me that we should do if we're concerned. 
I know owners feel terrible, and all I can say is that, you know, you didn't know about it, but now that we know about it, my recommendation is change the dog food. There's no downside to being on a normal dog diet. And, you know, your veterinarian probably has prescription diets, but it doesn't have to be a prescription. It can be a standard senior or, you know, whatever age your dog is in diet that's not a grain-free diet that doesn't contain in the first top three to five ingredients legumes or tapioca or chickpeas, you know, sort of, but, but that has, you know, chicken or beef or whatever. I switch to diet and if your dog doesn't have, if the dog has no signs and you just want to follow the, the finding of this FDA report, then just feed the regular diet and hope for the best. What's, what's hard to understand is that some dogs get better when we switch to diet, but, but not all of them get better. Okay. Mm, that's, that's pretty sad. That is pretty sad yeah. there then too, because I think automatically people would think, oh, I'm just going to switch the food. And everything will be fine, but yeah, the damage I mean, may have already been done. A heart problem, it's not something that can be easily reversed with just a change of diet, I guess, at this if it's so far along, right? Right. So Dr. Gelser is a cardiologist, but I thought I needed to hear another side uh, from uh, of the argument. I wanted to speak with a nutritionist of a major pet food brand. So Dr. Jennifer Adolf, is, she's been on the show before, and yeah. she is a nutrition manager for Pet Curian, which is a Canadian-based uh, pet food company. And I asked her what Pet Curian's reaction to the FDA report is. A couple of things in the report uh, did stand out to me. Um, things that they noted were that it's important that the FDA doesn't yet know whether or how certain diets may be associated with DCM in some dogs. And they, it's really just their, it's their obligation as a public health agency to um, notify the public about these types of situations and that they are doing the work needed to investigate further. Um, and so really the, the FDA is being transparent in, in the reporting that they've received. Um, and so they really haven't been able to establish a, a cause and effect relationship between the diets and the development of DCM and um, more scientific study needs to be done. Okay, granted, right? This mm-hmm. is the first report on this, so we do need more information. Yes, definitely. So. Yes, you're right. We do need more information. But if you are a a dog cat owner, because this also this report does include cats as well, but most of the study was done on dogs. If you're a concerned uh, pet owner, you want to know about what yeah. what's going to happen with these grain free uh, foods. So Pet Curian, which uh, Dr. Adolf works for just like many other brands, offers a ton of grain-free options. And I will say, full disclosure, my dogs eat pet curian. So I really wanted to know for myself. Yes. Um, so I was just wondering if now that this news is out and there's a lot of talk about this online and sort of a lot of concern, if pet curian plans to change their formulas. So pet curian doesn't believe in a one-for-all philosophy. And we do offer both grain-free and grain-inclusive diets. Um, As you know, grain-free diets have been very popular over the last couple of decades, and one factor driving this is that many dogs do very well on these diets. So because the the FDA has not established uh, a clear cause and effect of of the the grain-free diets with dilated cardiomyopathy and the number of case reports, um, even with all of the publicity that this has received over the last year, the number of reports is still, you know, fairly small. Although I know um, in the in uh, the minds of pet parents, one one case is is one too many, um, of course. But um, we we do um, think that first and foremost, we must meet the nutrient requirements of the pet, um, and then. But next, we also believe in offering uh, a wide variety of different ingredients in our recipes because not all dogs do well on the same diet. And so our team will absolutely continue to follow this investigation very closely. But at this time, there is insufficient evidence to suggest that cause and effect relationship between grain-free foods and DCM in dogs. Um, So we will continue to offer a wide variety of diets, both with and without grains. I'm already getting emails from people here as well, Claire, about what should they do? Should we add grains to the pet food bowl or like Mm -hmm. what should we do? Well, it's yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And that's what I think a lot of people are trying to figure out. And like the FDA said, you know, don't change the diet or whatever, because there still needs to 
be more more research needs to be done in order to determine what the link is. Um, when I asked um, the, the pet curian nutritionist and the cardiologist about what should be done, they said to consult your vet if you're planning to change uh, your dog's diet. Uh, so that's something you could do. You could talk to your vet about the concerns that you have, especially if you have maybe a dog that you're, you think is a candidate for developing the cardiomyopathy. I would just say talk to a vet, talk about what your concerns are, talk about the ingredients that you would like to see your dog eating, and they can make the recommendation for you. Right. Uh, so that would be the best thing to do. Also, if your pet is showing any symptoms of a heart condition, which includes decreased energy, cough, or difficulty breathing, you should contact your vet as soon as possible because like we said earlier in the segment, it's best to catch these right. problems early on. Claire, thank you for this. Thanks, Amy. Man, was that ever illuminating? I know there's a lot of people out there with dogs right now that are going, wait a minute, my dog food? Yes, do a little investigation on that. Ask your vet for more information. Well, it wasn't that long ago, what, six weeks, maybe two months ago, that we were horrified by what we were seeing every time we drove by a gas station or if we had to fill up with gas. Prices that were $1.69, $1.70, and then pushing into $1.71 or $1.72 a litre. We thought, what was going on? And the drumbeat was very loud, right, to the provincial government, do something, do something, help us. Uh, you know, relieve this pressure at the pump. So because of that political pressure, the provincial government had announced that the BC Utilities Commission would be looking into gas prices, looking into what makes these fluctuations happen, looking into why BC and in particular Metro Vancouver suffers these incredibly high gas prices. Uh, at, At several points, we were the highest gas prices at the pump in North America not a mantle that anybody wants to wear. So these hearings are supposed to be getting underway in the next few days, but just before that happens, we have developed a bit of an impasse, it sounds like. Turns out not all the gas companies want to play ball with this. This is the topic of an article today that Rob Shaw has written in the Vancouver Sun newspaper. You should check it out. Rob also joins us now to talk more about it. Hi, Rob. Hi, Simi. All right, let's talk about this because you've uncovered some really interesting information here about what is it? Gas companies don't want to play ball on this. Yeah, well, so this review that the government has ordered that's supposed to figure out whether or not you know there's price gouging or what exactly is causing gas prices to be so high in BC compared to everywhere else um, was going to rely on sending the gas companies a bunch of questions, and one of the questions there's actually multiple versions of this question, is what are your profit margins on your retail gas? So the difference between what the gas stations get on their wholesale price and what they sell to you at the pump. And then for those companies that have uh, refining capacity, so they take crude oil and turn it into gasoline, um, what are their refining margins? What profits do they make in that process as well? Because some oil companies go all the way through the process, refine their own product, and then sell it to you. So on both of those questions, the answers from companies back were, were basically a very polite, um, but no way. We're not telling you that information. It's confidential. It is um, a, a competitiveness issue that we need to hold on to this proprietary information, and we refuse to give it to you. So that was the response from um, Husky Energy, which runs the Husky stations, but also runs a refinery up in northern BC, uh, it, one of the smallest refineries in BC, also runs some SO gas stations, Suncor Energy, which runs the Petro Canada gas stations, and then Shell Canada, uh, which you know has a, a big operation. They said no. One company did say yes. That was 7-Eleven Canada um, and uh, also Supersave Gas, which is a local company. Um, they said yes, but we're, th- that information is confidential, so they handed it over to the Utilities Commission confidentially. So it, it does raise a question, like what, what are they, is it going to be a big problem that the commission doesn't have this information when they're trying to figure out what's going on? Right. And plus, this is not going to be public information though, right, Rob? I mean, this is something the BCUC was going to um, redact the information. It's not going to be made public. No, not if the company's asked. Uh, and it's not, I don't, I'm not sure the extent to which it's a massive um, secret. I mean, we know the kind of average margins. Uh, there's an interesting submission from Parkland. Now, Parkland runs a bunch of SO stations as well, but it's also the owner of the refinery, uh, the big refinery in Burnaby. So, like, basically, um, you know, the one that handles producing most of our gas in BC. And they, in their submission, which is quite long, they have average uh, markups. And it's interesting to kind of look at what they are. So, if you, if you fill up your tank of gas uh, for 50 bucks today, 
the according to the their numbers, about fifteen dollars of that is the price of getting crude oil. Uh, about twelve fifty is the price of refining that into gasoline. About four fifty is the retail margin, and then eighteen dollars is the various levels of tax that are added onto that. And that's your fifty dollar tank of gas. So I'm not sure how massive the general margins are as a secret, but for the companies they want to hold it close. And I'll add that Costco just kind of entered the fray very late. They have uh, said they would like to answer these questions and need some more time. I'd love to see Costco's margins because yeah. they're constantly they're constantly selling gas. They're the cheapest. Cheap on the idea, yeah, that they get it at a cheaper wholesale price. I I, I would love to see those numbers. I'm not sure if Costco is going to provide them either, though. Yeah, and especially with what we've seen happen in the last six, six weeks, right, where the numbers have fluctuated like crazy, five, ten cents from hour to hour, and you're wondering, well, wait a minute, what are the profit margins here that you guys are, are doing this in such a crazy fashion? It doesn't. It, well, look, it doesn't make sense. No. I, I have read all their submissions, and I. I was driving to work today in Victoria, and I stopped at an intersection that has four corners and three gas stations. And one of them was selling gas for a buck forty-nine, and one of the other two were selling them for a buck twenty-nine. There's a twenty cents differential yeah. there, and I don't understand. Despite having talked to these companies and read all this information, how that makes sense because it, 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 it just doesn't. So no, it's it either the most complicated um, system ever devised by man uh, on. Uh, or it just doesn't. It just doesn't add up. It, in a way, Rob. Then does this play into what the NDP government was trying to do here? They were trying to take the spotlight off of their taxation, right, of fuel, sure. and now they can say, "Well, look, gas prices aren't playing ball with us. The gas companies yeah. aren't." No, they love that. I mean, they'll pound the gas companies. Remember, it's not the only problem with this yes. commission. The government mandated the commission cannot look at taxes, so it can't look at the carbon tax and the provincial taxes on gas. And it, it's not going to look at whether or not an expanded Trans Mountain pipeline would help. And in a lot of these submissions, you do get a sense that the choke point here is the current Trans Mountain pipeline. It's, it's, everyone, it's full to capacity. Um, you know, Parkland is saying we could use more crude oil. We could refine more gas here. We can't get it from the existing Trans Mountain pipeline. The expansion would help us. But the commission is not going to look at that either. So it is great for the New Democrats. They can look at the oil companies and call them villains. Uh, and then yeah. and then hopefully, if gas prices don't shoot up again, um, there's less pressure on Premier John Horgan to do something about it. How much transparency is there on the government side of this, Rob, in terms of finding out how much of that you know price per litre goes to taxes? Well, that's all online. Yeah. Um, it's just not the kind of thing that government likes talking too much about. You know, in Metro Vancouver, it's 50-some-odd cents a litre. There's the transit tax, the GST, the provincial tax, the carbon tax. It's it's available, but the government doesn't like reminding people that that's a, a huge portion of the gas price. I read through all the other submissions, and, and here in no particular order are just some of the things the gas companies say contribute to the price. Uh, credit card fees, the minimum wage, which I think is important because a lot of the employees on the retail side of gas stations are making the minimum wage. DC's yeah. low carbon fuel requirements. Um, there's benchmarks in the way we set gas prices here that look at Portland and Chicago, environmental regulations. This is a really interesting one. The real estate prices, because the rental rates and the lease rates for gas stations, especially in downtown Vancouver, where we basically don't have any anymore. Yeah. Um, when, when the land is so valuable that you can make a billion dollars building a condo there, um, it becomes hard for a gas station to continue to operate and it's re- on its retail margin. So there's a ton of variables that come into play. I, I can't explain them in any cohesive way. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and I don't know if the Utilities Commission is going to be able to explain them and say, put all this together, mix it all up, add in OPEC and the Saudi Arabians and come all the way down to the guy earning minimum wage selling you the hot dog at 7-Eleven and tell us the price journey and how it actually works. Yeah. And it just doesn't it just doesn't seem to make any sense no, to me, to be honest. It does not. Rob, listen, thanks for explaining it to us. Okay, take care. That's Rob Shaw from the Vancouver Sun. You can read more today at thevancouversun.com about his piece on this. Let's talk about the humanitarian crisis that is going on right now on the southern U.S. border, where people seeking asylum in the United States are being detained in greater and greater numbers in border patrol facilities, and they are bursting at the seams. Now, U.S. Congressperson Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been attracting some criticism in recent weeks, sparked by her description of these facilities as 
concentration camps. Here's what she said in a social media post last month. The United States is running concentration camps on our southern border. And that is exactly what they are. They are concentration camps. I want to talk to the people that are concerned enough with humanity to say that we should not, that never again means something. Now, when she said that, when she posted that, of course, it just blew up, right? Drew so much criticism from people, even from Democrats like New York mayor and presidential candidate Bill de Blasio. When that story first broke, Hazel Sanchez from CBS2 News in New York explained the political reaction. The post by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez likening the Mexican border crisis to concentration camps triggered an avalanche of criticism on both sides of the political aisle. Even Ocasio ally Mayor de Blasio blasted the comments. They are entirely different realities. I respect her greatly and I feel very close to her in terms of philosophy, but of course she was wrong. You cannot compare what the Nazis did in concentration camps, unfortunately, is without any historical, I mean, it's a horrible moment in history. There's no way to compare. Reporters asked Ocasio-Cortez about border security, and she's not backing down on her choice of words. We've had 24 people die in these concentration camps that Trump has established on our border. And what they want to do is politicize it, warp it, turn it into a controversy, con- controversy about words, instead of turning it into a controversy about why kids are dying on a border with U.S. dollars. Republican minority leader Kevin McCarthy called Ocasio-Cortez's comments embarrassing. She does not understand history. She does not understand what's going on the border. To take something that happened in history where millions of Jews have died and equate it to somewhere that's happening on the border, she owes this nation an apology. Congressman Jerry Nadler did offer some support to the congresswoman, saying on Twitter in part that we fail to learn the lessons of the Holocaust when we don't call out the inhumanity in front of us. In the newsroom, Hazel Sanchez, CBS 2 News. So two different views there, and that debate has continued in the United States. Is it wrong to say the U.S. has concentration camps? Our next guest knows a lot about this. She is a journalist. She is a historian. She's the author of several books on this topic, including the one that's really important here called One Long Night, A Global History of Concentration Camps. Her name is Andrea Pitzer, and I spoke with her before we came on air this morning. And here's the first part of our conversation. Thanks for having me on. Has there been a debate like this before? Oh, the debate over what to call these things goes back more than 100 years. And to actually one of the first two examples of what were called concentration camps um, in about 1900 in southern Africa, the British opened up camps for women and children that were beset with overcrowding and disease and malnutrition. And tens of thousands of people, mostly children, ended up dying in them. And they were holding the descendants of Dutch settlers that were known as Boers. And in the discussions of these Boer camps, the government insisted on calling them refugee camps, but they were the ones who had burned the land and the buildings and forced everybody behind barbed wire. And so a cry went up in Parliament that, no, they were not refugee camps, that the government had created the situation and had made it worse on purpose, and that they were concentration camps. And that was actually the name that stuck, but that was one of the first times that it was used. Interestingly, in those same camps, there were uh, people begging the British to send soap for basic hygiene for children. So even the soap and toothpaste issue that we're seeing on the U.S. border goes back more than 100 years in these kinds of camps. Right. And how, how do you define then what is happening in the U.S. right now? Is this an argument that we have seen, as you said, more for 100 years? Well, yes. Um, if you look at uh, there were camps that the U.S. ran in the Philippines uh, about the same time that those Boer camps were open. And even though we had condemned other camps that had already existed in the world, there were people who insisted that these Filipinos that we were putting in uh, camps, again, mostly women and children, that's most of who died, more than 10,000 people died when we had them in there, that we were actually civilizing them, that it was good for them, that we were doing something appropriate, and uh, that, that these were not like those other concentration camps that had been described. And if you look at World War II as well with Japanese-American internment, uh, you know, those fit the definition of concentration camp. President Roosevelt had referred to them as such, but there was an awareness at that point of the Nazi camps. And with the Nazi camps, uh, nobody wanted to be compared to that. So we started this elaborate renaming process of not using that 
term, Mm -hmm. even though initially that's what everybody called them. One thing I think is really important to say, though, is that uh, there's one part of the distress over this that I really do understand, which is that when people sometimes hear the phrase concentration camps, they're thinking of Auschwitz and the death camp. It's important to know there are no camps in history, anything like those death camps. That was actually a literal extermination camp system that was added on to the existing concentration camp system, but mostly separate from it in Nazi Germany. So there's nothing else in history that is like those extermination camps, and millions of people were murdered in the Holocaust. But before those death camps came to be, a concentration camp system had existed in Nazi Germany for almost a decade, and it's that early part of that system and much earlier systems even than that across four decades That's what I'm comparing to what we're doing on the U.S. border. You have said that the process of normalization, quote, when a bad camp becomes much more dangerous, is not unusual. How does that happen? Well, there's sort of two things that happen when you open a camp system. There are predictable things that almost always happen if they're kept open for a long period of time. Overcrowding, disease, uh, and often it's diseases that wouldn't kill people if they were you or me and could get to a doctor and not be... Uh, hungry and not be cold and sleeping on concrete or on bare ground. Uh, Just things like influenza and uh, sepsis can develop in some of these conditions. And this is what we've already seen in the border camps. And so that normal process of shoving too many people into unsafe conditions is going to make them sick and kill them over time. But in addition to that, the longer camps are kept open, historically, people begin to sort of turn their eyes toward other possibilities that those people can be used for who are in the camp. So it might be for forced labor. Um, It might be, let's start putting other groups into detention. And an example that I've used a lot is in the 1990s in the U.S., there were waves of tens of thousands of people fleeing Haiti and Cuba. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. picked them up at sea and put them in Guantanamo. And they held them there and they didn't know because they didn't want to let them apply for asylum. And there was no sort of sense on the ground of, for those people of what the process would be, whether they would even be allowed to apply, what was going to happen to them. They were kept in terrible conditions. Again, tens of thousands of people. There were riots. There were HIV people who were set up in a segregated camp and not given medical care. Mm-hmm. Uh, the courts had to intervene. The battle over all that ended up sort of leaving Guantanamo in a gray area legally, which is what allowed it to be used the way it was after 9-11. So there's an example of uh, migrants, you know, seeking refugee status or seeking asylum seeker status, who then uh, sort of, it sets the stage where there's a camp that does remain open for a period of time and then becomes something much worse. Your work is so startling because it lays out quite clearly how historically it's almost like the response has been the same, right? We uh, argue, society argues about what do we call these places? Oh, what are these places? And yet they are still continued to allow to exist. Well, every government who has ever opened a camp system, and I mean, I went to four continents. I was sneaked into camps that are still open today in Myanmar. I mean, I went a lot of places. Every government throughout history who's done this has said, our camps aren't like those other camps. And also, these people that we're detaining deserve it, or they brought it on themselves. That is always what is said, and it is never the case. And so I think uh, I understand people's reluctance to sort of compare this to the death camps, but that's not what I'm doing. I think using the name is important because it tells us, first of all, what's likely to happen next, because we can look at history for the examples of what typical things have happened. But it can also tell us... uh, this idea that we are in a state that is more than just opening a detention facility or two. Mm -hmm. We have created a polarized situation in American society, and we have a bad system that is in place that's very dangerous and could be much worse, and we need to think of how to undo that system. What is going to happen next, like if you look at history? Well, if you look at history, I think that um, for the U.S., that if the Supreme Court ends up getting involved, unfortunately, They may very well uh, sort of legalize this by half measures. They may cut back on some of the worst abuses, but by not addressing the whole spectrum because they can only consider the questions brought before them, they may end up legitimizing some of this. Um, You may see it sort of institutionalized beyond just President Trump's administration pushing it. And I do think it's also worth saying several prior administrations have a hand in this. They made it possible to commit the kind of abuses Mm -hmm. that we are seeing today 
and, gave, and actually created some of those tools and committed some abuses themselves. Courts have had to be involved for decades in this process already, but what the Trump administration is doing is driving it off the cliff. And I think the danger, you're saying what would be coming next, it is unusual in a democracy to detain a group of people that you have the president and people around him actively vilifying, actively denigrating this group of people. Even when we've done this in the past, there's been lip service to we're going to let these Japanese-American detainees out. This is just a security measure for now. Nobody's saying they're evil people. You know, on the official levels, there wasn't that kind of rhetoric. But the fact that we have official rhetoric that has literally been coming out of President Trump's mouth since the day he declared as a candidate, I think the way that society and, and his base is going to be pushed to do more harm to these people on the ground level, I think is very concerning. Is there a case in history, Andrea, where public pressure resulted in a government making changes or stopping what they were doing? Not in a really simple way. I mean, so that's the bad answer. Yeah. The, the, the better is a slightly more helpful and hopeful answer um, is that there have been things, even in police states, there were people in Nazi Germany that stood up publicly against the euthanization of the developmentally disabled and made a difference on that small uh, frame, you know, not for the whole camp system, not that kind of thing, but some of those abuses. In the Soviet gulag, People in the camps actually struck, you know, they were forced laborers and they went on strike. So people who did things in the past at tremendous risk to themselves can sort of provide a model to say, if you think this is wrong, we live in a democracy. Most people can go out and they can make donations, they can volunteer, they can run for office, they can write their representatives, they can protest. There is sort of no limit to what people can do. I think given our current situation with the split House and Senate, where the House would very much, I think, want to address this, and the Senate seems very much inclined to go along with the President, um, it's unlikely that that is going to resolve the issue. I don't see the issue being being resolved by the administration, and I see the court maybe in a problematic role or unwilling to stop it. So I think that that kind of direct action by people and raising awareness of what is actually going on in these places is probably the best step. But there is one other good piece of news, which is you really have to train people to do this. This doesn't happen automatically. It requires a government or a party to spend years uh, demonizing a particular group, uh, creating conditions in which the larger community will tolerate them being locked up. And so it isn't an automatic process. It isn't an inevitable process. If it has to go through these stages to happen, then those stages can be wound backwards and undone. But I don't think it's going to be anything simple. Andrea, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for this discussion today. Thank you for having me on. That is Andrea Pitzer. She has written extensively about the issue of concentration camps. And yes, she says essentially what is going on down in the U.S. can be described as such for uh, decades, as she pointed out. For more than 100 years, governments have tried to call them something else. Uh, But that is, and she has gone to them all over the world, she said, and researched them. And that is what is going on there. You may have heard in the news that yesterday the provincial government announced a grant for the Delta Gymnastics Society. When I heard that, I thought, oh, that's nice, some programs for the kids. No, that is not what this is. In fact, it's even nicer than that because it's a program for seniors. And I thought I definitely want to hear more about a gymnastics program that is aimed at seniors. So joining us today to talk more about this is Anna Arseniega, the executive director of the Delta Gymnastics Society. And as well, we have Wynne Osborne, who is a participant in the Seniors Can Move program. Uh, Thanks to both of you for being here today. Thanks for having us. And now, Anna, I'd like to start with you. Tell me about this program. How did it get started? Well, it was one of those what-if moments. You know, we uh, have been providing uh, gymnastics programs for children since 1975. And a few years back, we started thinking, you know, why don't we bring in seniors to do a gymnastics program? Because we already have the equipment and the know-how. And the jump between adapting from a child program to a senior program (laughs) is not uh, a big jump. It's just a question of, of adapting the program. And uh, we thought what it would be great to happen during the, during the daytime when the, uh, the children are here. And it proved to be a great um, idea. Yeah. So we're very happy about that. Yeah, it does sound like a great idea. Uh, when, yes. when did you get involved in this? Um, I think it was about three years ago. And what it, why did you want to get involved? What did you hear about it? Well, I heard about it through Kin Centre. The gentleman who 
was my boss in Kin Center. He came to me one day and told me about this program, and he said, do you think you can get this thing going? And I said, well, I've just dropped something else out here. I guess I've got time. <laughs> so we started making inquiries about it, and um, people seemed quite enthusiastic. And then they called a meeting, and John and I came down to it, and we were very enthusiastic about it because there's so many seniors in this area, and I see so many of them a lot younger than I am, and they're hobbling around with sticks and walkers and all the rest of it. So I thought, right, let's get them moving, because they're much too young to be there. (laughs) (laughs) When? how old are you? I'm 87. So you're 87, and you're like, if I can do this class, people younger than me can do this class. Oh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Anna, what is the class involved? Like, how do you get the seniors exercising and moving? So the the initial program was funded by a federal grant through the New Horizons for Seniors program, and it involved having a committee of seniors um, helping us sort of develop this program. So Wynn was part of that initial committee, and uh, we ran the program with, uh, we partnered with four different senior communities in Delta, and uh, we had... Uh, 20 classes per each group. So they all did a, you know, uh, we had a lot of seniors coming and we were testing different things, you know, like how is the program running? Are the lesson plans good? We consulted with some nurse, geriatric nurses, you know, are we doing this right? And uh, that grant ended and we had applied for it to be renewed. Unfortunately, it wasn't, but we had invited our MLA from North Delta, Ravi Kalan, to come and observe what we were doing. And the provincial government wanted to support programs for seniors. So uh, that's why we got this uh, new awesome grant for $150,000, which will allow us to provide it free of service. I mean, free of charge for the seniors for the next two years, really, till the fall of 2020. Oh, that is great. So, Wynn, tell me about a class. What do you do when you go to one of these classes? Well, if they start off, they are, of course, balance classes. And you walk up and down a line, and then you try and stand on one foot. And a lot of things that we say, look at them and say, oh, I can do that. That's no problem. And then you try and do it, and you realize you can't do it. (laughs) And I know most of the senior centers have exercise classes going. And, um, however, they're up until maybe about people about 65, 70. The people over 70, I find, lose their balance more than anything else. Um, and that's when we decide, you know, I, I'll say to them, because I work a lot at Kin Village, and I see a lot of the older people, I said, why don't you go in and do some of the exercise class? Oh, I can't do them now. I'm too old and I'm too stiff or something. So this, this class is for people that are sort of past running around and, you yeah. know, <laughs> yeah. the, it's, it's, um, your balance is so important because uh, really there's so many broken arms and broken hips and all this sort of thing. And it's just purely because they trip over something or they fall down or they lose their balance and hit something. And um, I think this definitely has helped. I know it helped me greatly. Yeah. Um, I had once before fallen down a flight of steps and broken a a few ribs and and bones and things. However, we've got them all put back together again. (laughs) Over over my lifetime, I'm afraid I've kind of abused my body because I was a skier and I I actually broke my back at one stage. My goodness. And Um, it's no surprise to me that at the age of 87, you're in these (laughs) exercise classes. Anna, can you talk to me about the benefit of pairing seniors up in a facility where there's lots of kids there too, right? Where you get the interactive between the generations. That has proven to be one of the the secret sauces of is the opportunity for the seniors not only to improve their physical balance and coordination, as Wynn was referring to, um, and building their confidence in movement, but the emotional and the mental well-being that we have seen as a result of it, just simply because they're engaging and training in the same space and time with children, um, not only the three- and four-year-olds, but sometimes we get the field trips from the schools coming, we get um, special needs groups that come, we get sports uh we do a lot of cross training with soccer and other sports um and they get to see young people of different ages in their same space which is which just gives them a lot of motivation to return because they they come in smiling and they leave smiling so yeah. 
it just it just it's a beautiful thing to to watch for all of us not only for the seniors but we're happy to see that engagement as well when have you noticed a change in some of the seniors your friends who have been doing this class oh yes definitely definitely there is a change they walk a little bit straighter which I'm needing to do as well, <laughs> but um, they they uh, they have more confidence. But they they enjoyed the social side of it. Our teachers are so nice and so helpful, and the other people that you meet that you haven't known before, all of a sudden you're all talking together. So it's um, a community thing, and I think Ladner is just a perfect place for older people to retire to. And we do get quite a lot of people coming from the city because they've retired and they can't really afford to live in the city. It's so expensive. And they're coming out here and they're looking for things to do and they want to make friends. And this is a perfect place for doing it. Oh, I agree with you. I lived there myself for 20 years, so I know how great that is. Oh, good. Uh, (laughs) um, uh, Anna, let me ask you as well here. So is there any way to expand this? Have you had interest from other groups of doing this? Yes, yes, so the, so yes, the lucky, uh-huh. the lucky well, thing. Um, I, where I live, I was talking to a group of the people this morning and telling them about this thing because I was on TV last night. Ah, and of course superstar. A lot of people had seen me, so they were phoning me and asking me. And um, I suggest definitely it's the type of thing because I live, well, you know Ladner, but I live in Shorewalk, so there's quite a lot yep. of retired people there, quite a lot of single people there. And I was also saying to some of the men, I mean, they're, uh, I, I don't know, <laughs> we can't get them enthusiastic about exercise. They think <laughs> it's, it's a mushy thing. <laughs> Well, you can try. We um, can try. Anna, Anna, let me ask you here as well then. So have you gotten calls from elsewhere saying we'd like to do this? Oh, yes. Yeah, so yes. part of the plan mm. is to have, um, through this grant, we are able to create um, a manual, like a course manual. So then we can just uh, be able to facilitate that to other gymnastics facilities that would want to do something similar. So it'll include lesson plans and how to get about getting started with this program. And we will also, this also allows us to pilot it in a few communities. So we're going to be launching that out in the fall to see how they can apply for some of, so we're going to share some of our funding by uh, being able to deliver and pilot this program in up to 16 communities. We'll see how there's a few things that we have to make sure that they they have before we can you know pilot it at their community so so yes it's we're going to be able to scale up our knowledge and the expertise on this program um, across the province well i love it thanks to both of you for joining us today thank you so much for having us and good luck hope you get a lot of people involved in this that's anna arseniega who's the executive director at the delta gymnastics society and win osborne 87 years old participant in the seniors can move program